normally get to be on this side. Not normally. All right, well, Lord, we just pray you bless Randy today, that you would give him your word for us. Fill him with your spirit again, that he would just overflow. We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. I'll take that because I got one more thing. Okay, great. Thank you, Lori. I have so many things running through my brain, and one of them is I just need to say Ed Alice hugged me today, and it changed my life. <laughs> I don't know. We're talking about community, and I saw Ed. Ed hasn't, I haven't seen you in a couple of years, and Ed just came up and gave me a fatherly hug that just wrecked me on the inside. So if I cry, it is completely Ed's fault. <laughs> um, Wendy Weeks. Would you come up? Uh, as a part of the, the message uh, this morning, um, I asked Wendy to come forward. Is anyone else coming with you or just you? Bob. All right, Bob Strohmeyer. Uh, we're, one of the discipleship uh, groups that's happening is, is a content-oriented group about racial reconciliation. And we've done this once, and we're doing it again and inviting the whole church into it. So I asked uh, Wendy to uh, tell us a little bit about her experience in the last class. Okay, well, good morning. My um, my dear friend, Sean Israel, I don't know if she's in here, but she invited me to attend the last um, racial reconciliation class here, and um, I was really personally changed from taking that class. So um, we had speakers and videos on topics um, about, uh, like, our hidden biases that we all really do have, and... Um, just the, the injustices towards African Americans over the course of our history, and it laid a really good foundation for all of us. Um, we had some powerful times of praying in unity for unity, which was awesome. I think my favorite part of the class was really the discussion times. So we would be in small groups, and there was just an atmosphere of freedom to be able to share authentically and genuinely. You didn't have to have the correct answer, but it was really on a journey towards um, unity and reconciliation. And I just I so appreciated my African-American brothers and sisters being really vulnerable about their pain and anger and that we could just all have a deeper understanding. I know for me, I just had a deeper understanding and a deeper drive for wanting to see justice from that class. Um, I went into it just desiring to see more unity in the body of Christ, but God always does things in our hearts through it. And so even just yesterday, I was out of town in a different city walking down the street and saw an African-American man. And I had fear was my initial response, which was the same as before the class. But this time, a different thought came into my mind right away. And it was just because of the color of his skin doesn't mean that he's going to be violent towards me. Mm. And that was an effect of the class. Like it's had a lasting impact on me. You know, throughout the class, I would hear myself saying, I just didn't know that. I just didn't know that. And by the last um, session, I kind of felt like, you know, maybe it would be more accurate to say, I just never took the time to learn. And I think that it's really powerful that our church is offering a class like this, that we all have the opportunity to take the time to learn. Um, And really, you know, no matter how you react when you hear the news of racial tension or your desire for unity in the body of Christ, if you even just have a little bit of the desire to be a part of the answer, I just encourage you to really consider taking the class and you might be changed more than you even think. Awesome. Start next Sunday after the service, and we will have lunch, if that helps anyone. (laughs) Great, thank you. Okay, awesome. 
please uh, do make sure to look through your bulletin and make your way out to the lobby because there, a lot of invitations are being issued today, and uh, I think it's important that you say yes to those invitations, some invitation that the Lord's giving you. Um, why don't you uh, stand for a moment and see if you can find someone you haven't met before and say hi. I also just want to let you know we have sort of a growing community in our family of deaf people here, and if you'd like to meet someone there, I'm sure that Terry or Jordan would be happy to say hi. And I promise there is a message coming, but I've just just a lot of things brewing, and uh, we're a family, and when you get together as a family, you, you talk about what's brewing. Um, this, this morning, while we were praying with the worship team, and then also during worship, I had a con- sort of a continual image in my mind, and the image was of Jesus as a man um, taking the, the face of a, of a person and lifting it up so that the eyes of Jesus could meet the eyes of the person. And it occurred to me that when that would happen in the natural, if a father were to raise the child, the, you know, the, the face of a child, or maybe you're talking to someone and they feel shame and you raise their face, um, there's, a, there's an action from the, the person wanting to engage, but there's a response required from the one being engaged. You know how you can look at someone and fix your eyes upon them, but they can decide whether they fix their eyes upon you or not. And um, it's, it's a nice message and God loves you and all that stuff. But <laughs> my sense today was there might be some people here this morning who are literally feeling, sensing that Jesus himself is lifting their head this morning and that he wants to gaze upon them. And I think that that may be possibly some people here this morning who have been involved in church, even heard the good news. You know, God loves you and created you to have a relationship. Your sin has separated you from God, but Jesus is God's provision for your sin. And you can know God through his son, Jesus. Maybe you've heard that, but this morning, this morning you have a sense of Jesus himself like wanting to look into your eyes. And perhaps your sense when you uh, feel God lifting your face is a sense of shame. But I'm not worthy. What will happen if I look into the eyes of God? And you know you're right. You're not worthy. But when the hands of God reach out and lift your eyes and he looks at you, those are hands and eyes of grace, which means he offers relationship and salvation apart from what you do. So, yes, you're unworthy, and yet Jesus, because of what he's done on the cross, makes worthy the one who just says yes to Jesus. So uh, it seems out of order in terms of how a church service usually goes, uh, but I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who is sensing that, that. That's for you. Jesus is lifting your face, and he wants to gaze into your eyes, and you're willing this morning, even in a public setting, to say, I want to look back at Jesus and say, yes. Does, if that resonates with you, that there will be butterflies happening right now in you, but I would ask you to stand up. Okay, lots of people. All right. 
I'm going to pray. Why don't you turn, and for these people who are responding to this clear message from the Lord, would you just uh, turn and look towards them, maybe lay your hands upon them. God, I thank you that this day you have turned your gaze upon these, your loved ones. And Lord, some who know that they know you, And yet again, they're walking out of shame and looking at you and receiving your grace and your mercy. And maybe some here this morning now that don't know that they know you. And for the first time, they're saying, Jesus, yes. I thank you that you died on the cross for me. You paid for my sin. And I receive once again, or for the first time, your acceptance of me. So maybe, maybe just even in your heart, those who are standing, you just say to Jesus, I accept your acceptance. I thank you that I am your beloved. And I set you as Lord and master over my life in loving surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. I was in a um, I was in a meetings meetings all day Friday and Saturday uh, doing some training. I was the trainee, not the trainer, and um, uh, a lot of the time was taken by people from ministry from different places, um, telling their stories. So we had about twenty minutes to tell our story, like you know, tell me all about yourself, your beauty and your brokenness and your redemption and everything and where you are right now, and you got twenty minutes to do it. And um, I'm tired today because I felt so much. I just like, uh, I'm an introvert anyway, but man, I just, I was overwhelmed in a good way by the reality of redemption in people's lives. And one of the stories, I won't, I won't disclose names, and, but one of the stories was so awesome, especially as a pastor. This woman was describing her life before Jesus, and she said someone invited her into church. She sat in church for a couple of years, never engaged with anyone. She was a youth at the time, didn't go to the youth group, didn't do anything, just sat there, walked out, sat there, walked out. And she said one day the youth came up, and one of the youth, a red-haired kid, maybe 14, and he was giving the announcements. And he said, she described it sort of like Napoleon Dynamite. She said, we're going to go on a trip, and we're going to do some gleaning in some fields. That, that was his announcement. And she said, at that moment, I started to weep. She said, I, just, I started to cry, and Jesus stood right in front of me. She said, I could see him right in front of me. And all of a sudden, the veil came from my eyes, and I realized he was for me. You know, so the pastors in the room were thinking, what? How does Napoleon Dynamite talking about gleaning reveal the, the presence of Jesus? And you know what the answer is? Nobody knows that. Except that when God reaches out to get a person, he can do anything, use anyone at any time. And we just heard story after story of, of, of people encountering God in the oddest ways. And I give you all of that only to say, isn't God amazing? <laughs> like, isn't he amazing that he, he reaches out to us and speaks our language, whatever that might be, you know? 
even at the end, I mean, I'm all for, you know, God, a miracle. But in the end, I'm, I'm asking her, now tell me about the gleaning. Like, how did that fit in? She's like, it didn't. It was Jesus. Oh, yeah, I got it. So today, we'll just fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, one, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this gathering of uh, your people. Thank you, God, that you're present right in the midst of us. And you love it when we come into your presence. And so, Lord, I ask that you'd uh, speak to us now through the scriptures in these next few moments. And I, I pray for churches all around the city this morning that are lifting up the name of Jesus and opening the word of God. And I pray that the word would release, would release the word, that the scripture would release the, the reality of Jesus. Especially, Lord, we pray for the Overflow Church, that Bethel Church plant, Jesse and his wife and his team, and, and some of the people that from our church are called to be a part of that plant. We ask for your blessing on them this day, tonight, as they do their first service. We pray that you would draw people to Jesus through that, that you would um, anoint and empower and provide for that body of believers that we get to link arms with in the kingdom. And we pray that you bless them. Now, God, speak to us and um, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are willing to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We uh, just finished a series called Ecclesia. It's, uh, uh, we talked about community for the last nine or ten weeks, and uh, we, uh, we explained Ecclesia as that Greek word that means the gathering of people, specifically came to become known the gathering of the church people that were called out of the world, ek, out of, kaleo, to be called, called out of the world to be a, uh, the body of Christ, to be the expression of the hands and the feet of Jesus, the heart of God on the earth. And one of the things I want to remind you about as we walk into this new series, uh, Lessons from the Life of David, I want to remind you that as a part of the ecclesia, the church, the body, you don't do it alone. Ecclesia is a collective noun. You cannot be the ecclesia all by yourself. It's like being a group of one. It doesn't work, right? Self-contradictory. And so I just uh, issue the invitation to some of you who are not connected in any form of community. It is time to connect. Just hear that this morning. It is time to connect. That might be one of the groups here at the Vineyard. That might be a group at a church where you're coming from because you're visiting today. That might be a neighborhood Bible study. That might be one other believer in your, uh, in your apartment or at your school that you connect with on a weekly basis. And I'm going to make sure that there are questions available right after each Sunday message for all of these transforming groups and discipleship groups and communities and individuals to, to dive deeper into the content. Because God brings a change in his people when his people gather in his name and in his presence. Okay, there's a little reminder for you. We're going to start a series. I, I really don't know why I called it this, so maybe we'll find that out. I, I'm calling it Lessons in Real Life. The staff was asking, like, why is it called that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> but for some reason, when I was thinking about the life of David and how it applies to us, I thought to myself, this is like lessons in real life. David was not a super spiritual dude. He was an incredibly spiritual dude. And, man, did he blow it. 
He was real life. And I thought we learn by looking at the scriptures and saying, how did, how did the Holy Spirit of God work in and through this broken vessel so that we can look in the mirror and say, how will the Holy Spirit of God work in this broken vessel? So uh, we're going to look at the life of David. A uh, couple of suggestions. If you want a lot more than I'm going to give, history, info on David, pick any good commentary, First and Second Samuel. If you need specific commentaries because you don't know what one is, ask me afterwards. Uh, two books, uh, three books, I would recommend Alan Redpath. Alan Redpath on the life of David. Beth Moore, ever heard of her? She's pretty good on the life of David. And Mike Bickle. Uh, just go to MikeBickle.org. He's got 28 messages on the life of David. And you've got notes and PDFs, and he's talking, and it's awesome. All right, a little bit of an introduction for today to give you some context for our study. After Moses and Joshua died, we're talking like Old, Old Testament, the people of Israel were governed by a series of judges and priests. That's the government that God set up for the people of God. And it was a good system. And the people followed God, except for when they didn't, which is like the history of us, right? Uh, roughly 1,000 B.C., the people of Israel asked God for a king. And, I, and, and though this is introductory, I want you to hear this because it, it, it features in the message later. The people of Israel asked for a king. Why? Because they looked around at everyone else and they said in their hearts, we want to be like them. Comparison was right at the root of the people of God asking God to replace himself as their leader. Now, God, in the midst of redemption, can handle all that, right? He can deal with it all. But it was right at the beginning of the, the I mean, before David had come on the scene, that the people of God said, we want a king because we want to be like every other nation. We want a person to look at because we don't know how to deal with God. And so Saul became king at the age of 30. He was the first king of Israel, ruled for 42 years, and Saul had his good and his bad moments, openly disobeyed God in a couple of significant matters. And so the prophet Samuel spoke and said, the kingdom of Saul will not last. God has chosen another. And then, um, as we'll read in 1 Samuel 16, uh, Samuel comes to anoint the young boy David as the king of Israel. We have, uh, there's more information about the life of David in the Old Testament than any other Old Testament character. There are 60 references to David in the New Testament. There are 73 psalms written by David. So of the 150 psalms, about half of them are just the heart of David being poured out. And you know, it's real. Like, uh, Bill Johnson says, if, if, if you need to connect with God through your emotions, just read the Psalms till you find yourself. Because every emotion is in there. Because it's a real man connecting in a real way with the God of his life in an imperfect way. David's name means beloved, and I just love that. If you wonder why I love that, listen to the last two messages. David was born around 1040 B.C. He was the eighth and the final child of his father, Jesse. Shout out for the youngest. Come on, anybody else? Youngest child. Babies rule. 
And they drool, so it works. Okay. Uh, let's read from 1 Samuel 16. And I'm going to read um, 13 verses here from 1 Samuel 16. It's not on your screen. If you have a device, a Bible, or you've memorized it, go to that place in your brain. Otherwise, just listen to the story of God being revealed to us in the scripture. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? He's the old king. Since I've rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, if if I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town uh, trembled when they met him and they asked, do you come in peace? This man was a prophet of God. Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. It was uh, um, Jesse's first son. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? (laughs) Isn't that funny? Like, is that all you got? (laughs) There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. First, lesson from the life of David that I'm extracting from this big story and this large passage is from 1 Samuel 16:7, and it is this. There's no room for comparison in the kingdom of God. There is no room for comparison in the kingdom of God. In about five minutes, I'm going to qualify that statement. But I'm telling you, I want you to hear it bluntly. No room for comparison in the kingdom. In the ecclesia, in the called out ones, there's, there's no room for jockeying for position, for comparing me against you and this church against that church. Je- Jesus just simply says no. God does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The enemy of the Lord, yes, there is one, Satan, would love to have us evaluate ourselves by our outward, external abilities, appearance, wealth, intelligence, humility, whatever the thing is that you think looks out on the outside like, man, that's what I want to be. The enemy wants you to focus on those externals. Why? Why does the enemy 
you know, feed comparison so much in our, in our world, in our culture, in our church, in our church, in us. Why does the enemy of our souls do that? Because when he, when he causes us to look at another and compare ourselves outside of God's view, he can keep us in fear or he can push us to pride, Right? If the enemy can have us looking at all the externals and we look at other people and say, I wish I could or I would or how do I compare to them, then the enemy either has us looking at fear like, oh my gosh, there will be someone who will be better than me. And we're not looking at Jesus. Or he can get us in that place where, man, I got it. You walk into a room, I mean, who doesn't know this feeling? You walk into a room and you scan, like, where do I fit? Come on, just be honest. Where do I fit? How do I stack up? Physically, intellectually, spiritually, coolly. I don't know, is that a word? You know, in terms of coolness, I don't know. There's got to be something there. You know, how do I fit? And personalities are different, right? Am I alike enough or am I different enough? Either one. It gets us in that place of you, you look around, you think, okay, I think, I'm, I think I win here. It's called pride. And it goes before the fall. And the Lord hates it. Just period is what the Bible says. Numbers 13.32, if you remember the story, um, uh, Moses sends out the spies to see the land, the actual land that God said, I'm going to give this one to you. And 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, we can't beat them. I mean, it's already been said, God's given it to you. And they're like, we can't beat them. And then this telling scripture, we are like grasshoppers in our own sight. They looked at, the, at the, the people of the land who were dwelling in the land that the Lord had given them and said, compared to them, we're grasshoppers. So what did they do? They focused on themselves. They took their eyes off of God and denied what God had wanted to give them. Fortunately, there were two, Caleb and Joshua, who said, no, <laughs> like, we can do this because God is with us. Because God looks and sees what people don't see because God actually looks at us and looks for us when people do not, then we can know that God sees us, right? God has formed you. God knows you. He chose you. He indwelt you. He's empowered you. He secures you. And when we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, then we can see his eyes upon us and we don't have to walk in comparison with every other and the insecurity that comes from it. Who doesn't know the insecurity that comes from comparison, even if you compare yourself and end up on the top of the heap, right? It's like now I'm up here, everyone's after me, right? And we walk in anxiety that, that Jesus says you don't have to. So God instructs Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. Don't judge by externals. Now, here's my qualifier. We live in a world of humans. And we live in a world of different humans. And we live in a world where competition is a part of the world. And I'm not condemning competition. I'm not condemning competition. But guard yourself. What is it that you are striving for in competition? I'm not even condemning all comparison, some comparison is good. But when we, when we compete in the world, we're competing at times for jobs. And, you know, you, you look at resumes and you have to judge. 
I mean that in a good sense. You have to judge. Who has God called? Who has the right tools for this position? We are not at that point judging innate value that's determined only by God. We're determining placement of God's chosen person, right? Knowing that if we choose one, then God will elect another to go another place. I'm not condemning comparison or competition completely. We have to live in that world. But what the Lord says is when, when it comes to matters of the heart, when it comes to matters of value and the choice of God, we don't look at the externals to determine internal value. And that's why the scripture is so important. You know, the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at the outward appearance. Man looks like that, but God looks at the heart, the motivation, the, 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 the singleness of heart. Okay, qualifier concluded. This is uh, uh, congregational participation time. What were the two sins that we see in the life of David that he was specifically called out for and had to repent from? Just go ahead and name them if you got them. Adultery, murder. Okay, I'm lumping all of those into what I'll call the Bathsheba incident. Okay, because uh, in that one, uh, David managed to uh, include lust, adultery, possibly rape, deceit, and murder. Okay. So we're just going to call that one the Bathsheba incident, right? That's the one. I'm playing with it a little bit. What's the second? Taking the census. We don't hear as much about that one. Not a whole lot of preaching on the census. First Chronicles 21. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel to count the people. So David said to Joab, go out and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. And Joab, he's commander of the army, replies, my lord, the king, you know, uh, he says something I can't read. Are not all my lord's uh, subjects? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Joab says, like, why would you sin against the Lord by counting the people? And you're thinking to yourself, like I'm thinking to myself, what is the big deal about counting? And I'll give you my opinion on it, all right? There could be other opinions. At the very least, it revealed the pride and the self-focused sort of pomposity, pompacity. He was pompous? Right? There was some sense of David, like, look at what I've done. Let's get the numbers. And whether he was comparing to other numbers, who knows what he was doing. But at the very least, pride. But here's another thought, and I just swiped this from a commentary, but man, it hit me. In those times, a man only had the right to count or number what belonged to him. He only had the right to count or to number what actually belonged to him. So there's a place in the Old Testament where the Lord says, count the people because you're responsible for them. There's going to be tribute owed for them. We've got to atone for their sin. We're talking Old Testament, right? And so what did David do? He counted people that didn't belong to him. They belonged to the Lord. He owned the people that God called him to shepherd. 
I think that that's at the root of the sin of the census. I don't think God is against in all ways. How are we doing? What, what God's called us to do, how are we doing? Are we doing better or worse? I don't think that that's innately wrong unless we think that what we're doing belongs to us because then we've missed out on the key message of stewardship in the Bible. Everything we have comes from God. And even when we give, we give out of his hand. When pastors uh, cite the numbers of people in their church, I know how this works, all right? Somewhere deep down is often, got a lot of people. I got a lot of people. Wow. I mean, that's a scary thought as a pastor, actually. So I give you that to consider about the, the two things that God called David specifically to repent for. The Bathsheba incident, lust, murder, adultery, rape, deceit, and simply counting the people, which was an illustration of his pride and him taking, once again, ownership of what God said you were a steward of. Comparison in and of itself, I would say, is not sin. I'm giving you some opinions here. I'm not so much teaching right now as I want to provoke you. I do. I want to provoke you to look at your own life in the light of God and, God, how do I walk out in the world in relationship to comparison? We're called to imitate Jesus, right? So there's some sort of comparison. There's Jesus. Here am I. How could I look more like him? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a good thing. He's like, to the extent that I look like Jesus, why don't you look like me? It's, it's something to look at because we become like that upon which we set our gaze, right? It's positive comparison. Maybe your parents measured you when you were small, you know, on the house, the, the, the door, they, you know, measured more. And why did they do that? To tell you how you were falling short? No. To show you your growth. You walked away from the door like, I am four foot one. <laughs> when you get older, it goes the other way, you know. I am once again four foot one. Your parents do that to encourage you. But comparison that determines value is misguided, right? Comparison that brings encouragement and exhortation and a focus on Jesus, that's awesome. But anything that determines value as if you are what you do is misguided. And Jesus just simply says, don't do it. God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. It doesn't mean that what we do in life, in ministry, in Christ is not important. It's supremely important. No, it's very important. Of supreme importance is our connection to the one who chose us and redeemed us, who created us and recreated us and secures us by his calling for his pleasure, not our doing and our deeds. Does that make sense? So the question is not, are you greater or lesser? Do you have more or less? In any realm, ministry, life, money, looks, whatever, the question is, are you wholehearted in your love for God? As you gaze upon God, is your heart whole towards him? It is your eye single on Jesus. We, we, we walk around often with half-hearted, double-minded attitudes. And the 
clear call of the scripture is wholeheartedness and single-mindedness. So if you want to compare, look at your life and say, God, to what extent am I wholehearted? Because every time the Lord shows you a lack, it's an invitation to cooperate with his wholeness. Every single time. Matthew 6, and 23, Jesus speaking, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's a confusing passage, and it seems to be just inserted in a random place. But the Holy Spirit is not confusing or random. Apparently, it's crucial both what we look at and how we look at it. How we look at the world, how we look at God, how we look at ourselves. And what Jesus says is if your eye, you know, this is the looking thing. If your eye is healthy, the Greek word is haplos. It means single. It means pure. It means like, you know, clear gaze on one thing. It says if your eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. In other words, that upon which you gaze consistently has incredible impact on your whole life body, soul, and spirit, right? And Jesus, just because he you know, loves to get us on both sides, he says, but if your eye is unhealthy, you know what the word is there? It's the same Greek word, follow me please, it's the same Greek word that Jesus uses in the, um, in the Lord's Prayer when it says, deliver us from evil. The word is evil. If your eye is evil. See, there's, they, he doesn't say like um, kind of healthy or kind of bad. Jesus is kind of one of those black and white people in this area. You are, your eye is healthy or your eye is unhealthy. Your gaze is upon me and me alone and who you are in me or your gaze is looking every other place to figure out where do I fit in this to determine my value by what I see and not by what God sees. This is good news. I promise this is good news because we're invited to wholeheartedness in a single eye. And when we gaze upon Jesus, when he lifts our, our face, we see his eyes of love. It's, like a, it's, it's even better than a hug from Ed Alice. It'll change your life day after day after day. The, the object and the motivation of our eyes affects our whole life. This means that since we're together as the ecclesia called out en masse to be this representation of the body of Christ, there's no room for competition in the, in the ecclesia. There's no room for competition. We sent out uh, one of our people to pastor another church last week. We're sending out three families, uh, the, the, the Barretts, the Merrimans, Julie Sparks, that are all helping to plant the overflow church because they're better than us. No, because we have so much to offer and they really needed our people. No, because the Lord of the harvest said, I need three of my favorites to come and be with a bunch of my other favorites so we can gather a whole bunch more favorites. And that's called the kingdom. I mean, that is really good news. It's heartbreaking, (laughs) but it's really good news. So we're not in competition. The only place in the New Testament that I could find, and you can challenge me, where it says that we're supposed to compete with one another, 
Romans 12, 9 and 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And here it is. Outdo one another in showing honor. You want to compete? <laughs> Let's go. Let's see who can honor the rest of the body the most. And when our focus is on bringing honor to the rest of the body, will we ever stand up and say, I'm the best honorer? No. Like, highly unlikely. Again, self-defeating. Matthew 10. We're going to look at, uh, in the next two minutes, two New Testament comparisons. And I'm not going to explain a lot. I'm just going to dump them on you and let you take them for the week and let the Holy Spirit do the teaching. Matthew 18, 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus answers the who's the greatest question by taking a child with no significant ability, no power, no money, no authority, no sense of who they are even yet, no influence, just a little kid who loves his father. And he says, you want to get into the kingdom? Let's not talk about great. Let's just talk about getting in. Repent and become like a child. Now, sometimes we say, okay, you've got to become like a child to get in, but then you've got to grow up like an adult and work real hard. But Jesus doesn't say that. I'm just, I'm just telling you what Jesus says. And it, who's the greatest? It's, it's the one... <clears throat> Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 11, 11. Jesus speaking again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He lifts John the Baptist way up high. The greatest, right? Next sentence. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. My translation, we are all the same size. We're all greater than John the Baptist. Is someone a greater, greater? I don't think Jesus is trying to say that. He's saying John the Baptist was the epitome of those Old Testament prophets that pointed to me. But now that you know me and I live in you and my spirit's within you, you're all the greatest. You're all the most awesome. Jacqueline Furness loves to say, I'm God's favorite. And she says that as a declaration of belovedness, knowing that every single one of us chosen by God is God's favorite. And only God, the perfect father, can really say that and not have the secret, but I really like this one, right? Because he's pure in heart. The only comparison that we get in life is with Jesus. And think about that. When we first compare ourselves to Jesus before we know him, we're all lost. It doesn't matter how lost. Lost is lost. Dead is dead. Sin is sin. Hell is hell. But when we come to Christ and and he reveals himself to us, we are all righteous. It doesn't matter for innate value who's the more righteous. Paul says we have become the righteousness of God in Christ. The one in here who feels the worst about their life in Jesus right now, if they have a life in Jesus, 
is the righteousness of God in Christ. The question is not, how will I work harder to prove that I am? But how will I keep my eyes and my heart fixed on Jesus so that I can begin to live in who I am and then live out who I am? Identity is key, and it's not external. It's an inside job. So there's no room, no room, no room for comparison in the kingdom. I'd like to ask the um, ministry team to come forward, and Lynn, would you come and play? And I'm going to give you um, at least three ways that you can respond to this message, but the Holy Spirit has many ways. You can walk away from this message convicted, but begin to justify your motivations for comparison. You can do that and miss the point of the message. You can walk away self-satisfied in your fearful and lazy attitude towards the life to which God has called you. No comparison, no work, I'm good, and miss the point of the message, right? Here's the point of the message. Jesus has got his hands right here, and he's lifting our eyes and just says, I want you to gaze in my eyes and see my love for you, and then abandon yourself to that love whatever that looks like, and forget about comparison and forget about striving and rest in who you are in me so that I can be everything I want to be in you and through you. And then every time the work of God happens, the name of Jesus gets lifted up in us, right? I think that that's the call this morning. It's single-minded, wholehearted, not human zeal, a collaboration with the zeal of the Holy Spirit, prompting a gaze upon Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are here, present. Your love abounds. And each of us could say this morning, I'm the chief of sinners. I feel it myself. And I thank you, God, that the chief of sinners in Christ is the righteousness of God in Christ. So, Lord, do your work, invite your children, and pour out your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like someone to pray for you for anything related to this morning's message or what's happened in your life, all these people would love to pray for you. Uh, I encourage you, before you go to have uh, food in the picnic, go out to the lobby. The doors are opening and uh, find out a group that you can connect with. And go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.